0: Wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History
0: of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
1: Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years?
0: Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the
1: right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
1: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: I grind you down, Rome, with my bare hands. Give up your weapons and hide. You are a senator in a city under siege. The siege has been going on for months. Beyond the city walls lurks the enemy. Thousands of violent barbarians who would just as soon rip your limbs off as look at you. No one can enter or leave the city without their blessing. Only a few meters of thick stone separate them from you and everything you love. Sometimes you hear them outside. Their shouts... Their bloodthirsty threats, their songs and battle cries. Your city was breached only once, 800 years before. These walls will never fall, you reassure yourselves, but the besiegers know that they don't have to bring the walls down to put you on your knees. Your wealth and your rank do not protect you from starvation. When hunger stalks the streets, you suffer along with the poorest. Finally, The great barbarian leader is ready to negotiate. You and your fellow senators leave the city under heavy escort, pass through a camp of mud and chaos. The barbarian leader receives you in his tent. He has ravaged the countryside over and over, led hundreds of thousands in murder and pillaging. Wherever he walks, he trails destruction and death in his wake. He wears the scarlet cloak of the Roman military and torques that signify his rank as a Gothic king. His hair is long and his must is fearsome. He speaks better Latin than you do. He brushes aside your attempt to negotiate. He has only one price, and it's everything you have. Everything of value in your entire city and every barbarian slave. You try to appeal to his reason and his compassion. Nothing works. Finally, you plead, if such, O king, are your demands, what do you intend to leave us? Your lives, Alaric replies. On August 24th, 410 A.D., Alaric and the Visigoths sacked the city of Rome. Before he sacked it, he starved it. Before that, he went toe-to-toe with the Roman Empire for 15 years, uniting disparate tribes, holding a people together, and achieving more against Rome than any barbarian leader before him. He didn't get what he wanted, but some would argue he achieved far more than he aimed to. This is his story. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So Jen, I'm going to start us off with this quote. I love this quote, and I'm going to see if I can handle the Latin, okay?
1: All right, remember, my Latin is now like, God, I haven't done Latin since high school, so I probably can't help you.
0: Tetero Roma manu nuda date tela latete. I grind you down, Rome, with my bare hands. Give up your weapons and hide.
1: Wow. That is chilling, Jenny. Where did you come up with that quote from?
0: So one of my oldest friends is a Latin teacher. And several years ago, she was hanging out at my parents' house in Vermont. And she wrote this quote down for me. I I have this memory of her scribbling it on a napkin, although she might remember it differently. Um, And this quote, she told me it was Alaric of the Visigoths, the person who sacked Rome. And I was completely... Wait,
1: wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Alaric of the Visigoths, as in Jenny Williamson's historical boyfriend. Are we going to do an Alaric of the Visigoths episode?
0: That's what this is. This is the actual Alaric of the Visigoths episode.
1: All right, guys, get ready. It's going to be fangirl city in here. So
0: my friend Minette introduced me to Alaric. She scribbled this quote down on like a napkin or something, but it just started this years-long obsession for me. It was so vivid. And I feel like most people know that Rome got sacked, Toward the end of the empire And a few people know That the people who did it Were the Visigoths Because that sounds really badass And of that few Maybe a fraction know That their leader Was a man named Alaric But to a lot of people He's just a footnote In history, you know Not like a towering name Like Caesar or Augustus Or Spartacus Or one of those Really recognizable names From ancient Rome And here's the thing He should be Because he's so fascinating I
1: mean he really is fascinating Jenny I didn't know anything about him Until you introduced me To your historical boyfriend Holy Hannah! in a hoop skirt his life was amazing
0: his life was fascinating as soon as minette wrote this down i was just completely hooked and i just started to read more about him and every time i read about him he just completely leaped off the page and he had some really interesting quotes and i kind of scattered them throughout like he was very quotable and he just had such a a strong personality just reading about him you know how you meet somebody sometimes and you feel like oh my gosh who are you i have to know you that's totally how i felt about alaric
1: yeah, I feel like this I feel like if poor Alaric was alive right now, you would totally be a stalker.
0: No, I I've been stalking him through time. Alaric was a king without a kingdom. He kept together a people caught between a rock and a hard place. The Huns on one side and the Romans on the other. His kingship was an elected position. He had to persuade, not command. And he must've been super good at it because he lost all the time, but people still followed him. Alaric was a super complicated person. He was an enemy of Rome, but he was also a big fan. And some would say that he didn't actually want to sack the city. He just found himself in a position where not sacking it was not an option. And I have been dying to tell this story. In fact, Alaric's episode was the first one that I researched for this podcast.
1: I think we can we can safely say Alaric is the reason we have this podcast.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true because I imagined having an episode called Stuff Alaric Said.
1: She did. And I was like, well, I think there are probably other people besides me who'd be interested in hearing Alaric's story. And here we are, guys. Strap in. Here we go. Alaric I was most likely born on an island at the mouth of the Danube called Pius Island, sometime between 370 and 375. It is located in present-day Romania, and the name comes from the ancient Greek word that means Pine tree. He was a member of an ancient gothic royal family, the Balthi, from the Trevengi Goths. The name means either the bold men or the bald man, depending on who you ask. Not a lot is known about his childhood. Who his father was is up for debate, although it was probably one of several known Trevengi chiefs. But based on where and when he was born, he probably lived through the Gothic War, which took place between three seventy six and three eighty two.
0: For the entirety of Alaric's life, his people were being ground to a pulp between two opposing, more powerful forces, the Huns and the Romans. This was the engine that drove him to eventually sack Rome. That and his own slighted ambitions... In the summer of 376, Alaric could have been anywhere from a year old to about six. A group of Huns swept in and pushed the Goths living along the border with the Roman Empire up against the Danube River. And this would have been an extremely traumatic event. The Huns would have slaughtered whole families and enslaved any survivors. The scholar Jerome wrote an eyewitness account of a Hun invasion around this time. Behold, the wolves, not of Arabia, but of the north, were let loose upon us. They filled the whole earth with slaughter and panic. By their speed, they out. Stripped rumor, and they took pity neither upon religion, nor rank, nor age, nor wailing childhood. Those who had just begun to live were compelled to die, and, in ignorance of their plight, would smile amid the drawn swords of the enemy.
1: Wow. So fleeing that brutality, between 90,000 and 200,000 Gothic families, warriors, women, children, the elderly, were pushed up against the Danube River at the border of the Roman Empire at the time, seeking refuge. This was a problem and an opportunity for the Roman Empire. A problem because suddenly hundreds of thousands of nominally friendly, possibly hostile refugees were now inside the empire's borders, many of them armed men. But If they could be pacified, the empire could conscript the men into the army, and the existing Roman army was already overtaxed. What it needed, Jenny, was manpower.
0: So, the Emperor Valens gave permission for the Goths to settle inside the empire. They were ferried across in hollowed-out tree trunks and other makeshift boats. Ninety to 200,000 people ferried across a high, rushing river swollen from rain in hollow logs. Unsurprisingly, a lot of people drowned. I mean, that's
1: insane!
0: I know. Can you imagine the chaos? No, I just can't imagine getting... First off, I can't
1: imagine, like, where the idea to, like, hollow out a tree log came from.
0: (laughs) Why would you not just make a raft
1: and tie a bunch of them together? It just doesn't seem practical.
0: Probably what happened was they ran out of wood, they ran out of boats, they used all the boats, and there were still more people who needed to come across. I mean, this was probably an act of desperation, the fact that they were resorting to tree trunks. Yeah, I'm just trying to
1: think of, like, how that would even work. But besides the point, it's it's just insane what they went through, the, the poor refugees.
0: Right, because they'd already been attacked by the Huns, and these were the survivors from that.
1: Yeah, and they had nowhere else to go. I mean, they had to make some sort of uneasy peace with the Roman Empire. Otherwise, there literally would be nowhere for them to go. They couldn't go back. The Huns had taken everything they had.
0: Exactly. So the Roman Empire put them in basically a refugee camp. The ones who survived the crossing were housed in camps along the southern bank of the Danube while they waited for the empire to resettle them. So the plan was that the empire would send food while they waited. But a lot of that food didn't get to the refugees. Corrupt Roman soldiers sold it off. And for a while, the Goths were so desperate, they were selling their children into slavery for food. The going rate was one dog for the stew pot, one child for the slaver's block.
1: That's just heartbreaking. I say this a lot when we talk about things in ancient history, but I mean, my heart just aches for making that decision. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu. I'm Helena Bonham-Carter,
0: and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II.
1: They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's
0: Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's not documented that Alaric lived through this or even saw it happen, but given where and when he grew up, it's quite possible. It's even possible that he and his family got ferried into one of those camps in a hollowed out log, which is just chilling to me. Eventually, the Goths, starving and desperate and racked by disease, broke out and rebelled against the Empire. They won a few battles, including the noteworthy Battle of Adrianople, but eventually the rebellion was brutally crushed. Alaric would probably have been too young to fight. The oldest he'd have been by the end of all this was 12. But if he saw it happen, no doubt he'd have grown up with a very keen sense of justice and maybe a chip on his shoulder against the Empire. I mean, this reminds me, Jenny, of Hannibal, Hannibal Barca and his, his papa,
0: remember? Yeah, Totally. Alaric first appears in history as a Federati leader. The Federati were groups of tribal allies recruited to flesh out the Roman army. They fought according to their own customs and followed their own leaders, but under Roman authority. Alaric led a group of Federati under the general Gainus, also a Goth. He would have been in his early or mid-twenties by then. And just to give you some background on the Roman Empire during Alaric's time, everyone was a Christian by now. The Emperor Theodosius I, who was emperor in the beginning of Alaric's career, made Nicene Christianity the state religion. Alaric was also a Christian, an Arian Christian. The difference is that Nicene Christians believe that Jesus was more or less equal to God, and Arians believe he was kind of number two in rank. This might sound like a small detail, but Nicene and Arian Christians argued, exiled each other's bishops, and tried to forcibly convert each other. So it was a big deal to the people at the time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Alaric was an Arian Christian in a Nicene Christian world. And like we said, he first appears in history fighting on the Roman side as a Federati leader. He fought against Eugenius, a former rhetoric teacher who had designs on becoming emperor of Rome. They clashed at the Battle of Frigidus. Now, the Battle of Frigidus takes its name from the Frigidus River, but historians aren't exactly sure which river that is, although the valley where it was fought was near the town of Aquileia, at the foot of the Julian Alps. The story of this battle has been retroactively told in religious terms, as a clash of the pagans against the Christians, with Eugenius's usurpers, aka the bad guys, being the pagans, and the Romans, and Alaric being the Christians. Theodosius attacked quickly, leaving very little time to learn the terrain beforehand, and he put Alaric and his Federati troops in the front lines to take the brunt of the damage. According to legend, a fierce wind sprang up at some point on the second day of the battle, blowing dust into the eyes of Eugenius's troops and driving their arrows back in their faces. The wind broke their lines, and Theodosius and Alric won. The story told afterward was that God sent the wind to punish the pagan usurpers.
0: Historians question this wind story, I think it's a little woo-woo magical god wind for a lot of academics, but actually it's not that far-fetched. There's a wind active in this area so strong it has a name the Bora. The Bora is a freezing cold wind that comes in gusts that have been measured at speeds of almost 190 miles per hour. In 2012, the Bora froze the coast solid by Senj, a Croatian town on the Adriatic Sea. It dropped the temperature to near zero Fahrenheit, built up waves 22 feet high, and ripped roofs off houses, trees out of the ground, and fish out of the sea. So yeah, the Bora is terrifying. It's more than capable of doing serious damage if it sprang up full strength in the middle of an ancient battle. September, when this battle happened, is right around the beginning of Boris season, and if the wind did come, it could very well be so dramatic that it might feel like divine aid to the winning side or divine retribution to the losing side.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, speaking of freaky weather, here in London last year, we had winter storm or autumn storm Orphelia, And it brought in some really strange winds from the continent that actually brought up red sand from a dust storm in the Azores. The weather here in Europe is really unpredictable. And you can get all kinds of strange weather patterns from anywhere. So I mean, I remember being in my office building and looking out at this completely red sky, like the entire day looked like it was sepia toned. And I can't imagine like, you know, knowing what it is, because we're living in modern day, like I know it's red sand from this dust storm from the Azores. But if I was living in ancient times I would think it would look like the end of the world it was apocalyptic out there
0: right so you can see why people would couch these weather events in religious terms because they they're just so dramatic you know yeah
1: I mean I'll put up some pictures on in the show notes and in the Instagram of the of the red sand and I'll link through to some of the photos on people put up on social but it really was terrifying so let's get back to our battle. Theodosius won that battle, and he was possibly aided by the Bora. But Alric's people paid the price for that victory. Alric lost 10,000 troops, about half of his manpower. Historians are blunt about Theodosius putting the Goths in the front lines on purpose to thin out their ranks so they wouldn't pose a threat in a future rebellion. The historian Orosius, who lived about the time of this battle, said, surely to have lost them is a boon. And their vanquishment of victory. That's a total dick move. Yeah, that is a very Augustus style dick move plan.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's strategic and kind of evil genius.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for the types of things that they wanted to avoid, which is having a lot of people who may or may not be friendly to the Roman Empire living in the Roman Empire and having them be armed at the time when the Roman Empire wasn't as strong as it possibly should be. Because as we said earlier, the army was overtaxed. They didn't have as many men as they've had at other times.
0: I'm sure that the problems compounded because by this time they'd been fighting a lot more, you know, and they lost a lot of people in Adrianople. And this is why they were relying on these Federati troops because they needed to fill out the army and they were facing all these usurper problems. But it, it also makes sense. The group of people you're fighting with who you don't quite trust, those are the people who were expendable. Exactly. So Alaric went rogue shortly after this, and it's tempting to assume that the treatment of his troops during this battle was the reason. But it wasn't just that. And contrary to the conclusions people jump to, based on the fact that Alaric actually did sack Rome, he didn't set out to completely destroy the Roman Empire
1: the Goths were largely Romanized by then. They served in the Roman army, and a lot of them were Roman citizens. Many of them were slaves, but some served at the highest levels of Roman society. Stilicho himself was a Goth, and for a while, he was the most powerful person in the Western Roman Empire, except for maybe the emperor himself. So, with all this alleged social mobility, why did Alric turn against the empire? If it wasn't because of this crappy treatment, what did Alaric? Alaric
0: want? One surprisingly simple answer is this, a promotion.
1: I'm just going to say this, Alaric's got to get paid, guys.
0: Well, he also wants that title. It's not, it it is the money, but it's also the title.
1: He he did all the things he should do to be a Roman general.
0: Turning against the empire is kind of like a big mark against him on his resume, I guess. Well, I mean, Caesar did it. Yeah, but Caesar also got (laughs) ganked. So, I mean...
1: (laughs) This is also true. (laughs) As much as
0: Alaric was an enemy of Rome, he was also a huge fan. He was obsessed with the empire's golden age and made his followers call him by the Latinized version of his name, Alaricus. And he was very status conscious. He was especially peeved that his direct superior in the Roman army, Gainus, was also a goth but didn't come from a royal gothic family line like Alaric did, and Alaric derisively called him a man of no lineage. Having someone he saw as a gothic commoner giving him orders was probably a slap in the face.
1: Frequently over subsequent years, Alaric's demands would include a generalship in the Roman army proper, not as an auxiliary leader. It isn't clear whether he really wanted this for himself or whether this was tactical. For instance, having an official role within the Roman army may have been a way for Alaric to keep his followers together and protected, rather than scattered to conscription and slavery, as so often happened to Goths who signed treaties with the empire. We can't really know for sure, but ultimately, Alaric's reasons could have included both. A little benefit for him? a benefit for his people.
0: The sure thing, though, is that Alaric was proclaimed King of the Goths sometime after the Battle of Frigidus. But what did this mean? The thing about King of the Goths as a title is that it's sort of like Peanut being neither a pea nor a nut. There weren't a unified people who called themselves Goths at this time. There were a multiplicity of Germanic tribes who had been united in some parts briefly before, but never on this magnitude. The Goths, as a term to unite all of them, only sprang up well after Alaric came to power. And their concept of kingship is a little unclear.
1: In Alaric's case, it appears to have been an elected position. Alaric was probably chosen from among the elite families of the Trevengi. The tribe he would identify himself as, rather than Gothic, because as we've already said, most Gothic peoples went more by a tribe affiliation than by the term Gothic. I mean, possibly because Gothic was a term that the Romans gave them anyway. So some accounts say he would have been raised on a shield when he was made king. That's the only detail we have about how this happened. But I really love the idea of him just being held up crowd surfing on a shield, don't you?
0: Yeah, it's pretty awesome.
1: Alaric, made king by crowd surfing on a shield.
0: Shield crowd surfing Alaric. I'm picturing it right now. Can you see it right now? I can see it right now. I'm using my imagination.
1: Really epic music.
0: Yeah, there's a cloak flying in the wind. He's got his mustaches out. (laughs) The giant Germanic mustaches. There's a giant crowd of people. Ah, it's beautiful. Can you see it, Jen? Can you see it?
1: I can see it. I'm just taking this moment to fangirl, guys. Hang on. And back.
0: It was a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing that with me.
1: And thank you for sharing it with us.
0: <laughs> Always.
1: Alaric wouldn't have called himself a king. His followers may have called him reichs, which is related to the Latin word rex, but the Goths tended to use this word more to mean leader of men or distinguished rather than ruler or monarch, which is the meaning of the Latin word. His name itself may have been a title. It comes from the Gothic word alaric, meaning supreme ruler or king of all.
0: Notice the rikes in the title, and you can see this pattern repeating in the names of other gothic kings, too, like Athanaric, Munderic, Arioric. In which case, what his original name was is anybody's guess.
1: I'm going with Conrad, Jenny.
0: Conrad?
1: Conrad.
0: You're going, okay, we, Conrad. I mean, I don't, I doubt his mother named him king of all right at birth, you know? I mean, it's a little bit grandiose for a baby, I mean, wasn't Alexander
1: the Great just called Alexander the Great from birth? I feel like that is something Olympias would have done, Jenny.
0: She would have like, you are Alexander the Great. I labored (laughs) to
1: bring you into this world and you will be
0: great. You had better be great because what I went through to bring you here was (laughs) no joke. After Alaric turned against the Empire, if you lived in parts of Greece, northern Italy, or the Balkans, his army would be like an act of God, an unpredictable disaster that swept through your region periodically, ruining everything you built and causing untold havoc. His forces murdered and pillaged, burned and destroyed, and city walls were not much protection. The historian Ammianus, writing about the Goths ravaging Thrace, gives us a pretty good sense of what this must have been like, probably gathered from eyewitnesses. Quote, Nothing that was not inaccessible remained untouched. For without distinction of age or sex, all places were ablaze with slaughter and great fires. Babies were torn from the very breasts of their mothers and slain. Matrons and widows whose husbands had been killed before their eyes were carried off. Boys of tender or adult age were dragged away over the dead bodies of their parents. Many older men, lamenting that they had lived long enough after losing their possessions and their beautiful women, were led into exile with their arms pinioned behind their backs, weeping over the glowing ashes of their ancestral homes.
1: Again, I'm just going to say it the second time this episode, but
0: this is absolutely
1: heartbreaking. I know the Romans and everyone else who Alaric was pillaging weren't his favorite people, but the devastation he's wreaking upon them is just heartbreaking.
0: Two wrongs don't make a right, Alaric.
1: Exactly.
0: Alaric ravaged
1: Greece and Macedonia so badly that eventually the empire cut a deal with him. They said, cut it out, Alaric, and you'll get what you want a legitimate position in the Roman hierarchy. His title was Supreme Sacker of Thrace and Director of Public Relations for the Gothic People. I'm sorry, Jenny. I mean, Magister Militum of Illyricum. Essentially, raising him to Stilicho's rank in the East.
0: The title matters, right? He wants to be Senior Publicity Director. And right now, he's he's just the publicity executive, and that's not cool. The guy who's senior publicity director has no lineage, and that is just a slap in the face.
1: And this concession also brought Alaric and his followers in charge of maintaining law and order in a region they'd just done pillaging through. These people were about as popular as the clap.
0: Yeah, and this didn't work out, surprising nobody. Eventually, the Roman Empire stopped honoring its concessions to Alaric, and in response, he took his followers over the Alps and invaded the Western Roman Empire. Stilicho stopped him at the Battle of Piedmont, where he attacked while Alaric's troops were celebrating Easter. Remember, they were all Arian Christians. During this battle, Alaric's wife and children were captured by Roman troops, and as far as I can tell, he never saw them again.
1: So, incidentally, an important thing to think about here was that Alaric's army wasn't an army in the way we think about it today. Uh, you know, a bunch of organized professional soldiers. Alaric was a king without a kingdom, and whole families followed his warriors into battle. His army was most likely made up of thousands of fighting men trailed by a large numbers of women and children. I mean, again, this reminds me a lot of Spartacus's army.
0: Yeah, did he have a lot of civilians following him around?
1: He did. He had a lot of freed slaves.
0: Yeah. And we uh, we were talking about this before, about how if he doesn't have anywhere for his people to be, possibly the safest place is with his army, because where are they going to settle? They're running from the Huns already, and they don't have a secure place in the Roman Empire. Maybe the safest place for them to be is on the move with this army.
1: I mean, maybe. I, I mean, you know, a part of me is like, no, because like all the bad things that could happen. But I guess if they're following the army, it It kind of makes them both more vulnerable and less vulnerable because like if they'd found some place to settle and all the men are constantly off fighting and pillaging, then the settlements would be incredibly vulnerable. Exactly. And that's partially due to the fact that people had nowhere else to be.
0: Well, that's exactly it. They had nowhere else to be. And it also makes yeah. sense why Spartacus would have had such a large entourage, because where where would the freed slaves go? I mean, if they stood still, they'd probably just get captured and brought back into slavery.
1: Yeah, and they, I mean, they would probably be in trouble for being involved in a revolt, you know, even if they were forcibly freed. Stilicho, Alaric's former commander at Frigidus, became his great rival during much of his career. He was half Gothic, a Vandal, but assimilated into Rome, and he considered himself a Roman. He was married to the Emperor Theodore, Theodosius's niece, and he married both of his daughters in succession to Theodosius's son, Honorius, who became emperor after him. According to the chronicler Zosimus, both of Stilicho's daughters died young and virgins. I wonder how young they were when they were engaged to Honorius.
0: I think that at least one of them was 14.
1: Seems strange that they never, like, consummated their marriage.
0: Yeah, I don't really know a lot about why. Maybe, Maybe Honorius was asexual.
1: Maybe. So Stilicho was known for being an outstanding rider and swordsman. A contemporary carving of him shows a tall man dressed in Roman clothes, but with a gothic spear, a Roman bowl haircut, and a gothic-looking beard. Because of course he had a gothic-looking beard.
0: Right. And the Romans were very clean-shaven. And facial hair was kind of a marker of being a barbarian at different points in the Roman Empire. A giant mustache is, is one of the most obvious ones, but beards too. Stilicho's relationship with Alaric was complicated. They were enemies, but Alaric was always slipping through Stilicho's fingers at the last minute. At one point, Stilicho tried to make Alaric an ally, enlisting his help to extend the Western Empire's control over the East. But by the time it was clear this alliance wouldn't work out, Alaric had already mobilized. He demanded 4,000 pounds of gold, enough to feed 100,000 followers for a year, for the cost of that. Somehow, Stilicho actually convinced the Roman Senate to pay him. And we talked about this. um, When was it? It was child emperors, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. During Honorius's reign and about how this kind of started a trend of powerful enemies of Rome demanding what was essentially protection money. Attila the Hun did it. Different people did it throughout history. And if it didn't start with Alaric, he was one of the first to think of it. I mean,
1: good on him.
0: I don't know if he ever actually saw that money, but he did get Stilicho to agree to vouch for him in the Senate to get it paid. I mean, Alaric is pretty gangster. That's very true.
1: (laughs) So because of this, Stilicho's enemies at court started to get suspicious that that he and Alaric were involved in some kind of treason plot. And I mean, kind of fair enough. That's a lot of money that Stilico's is vouching for.
0: I mean, if if it quacks like a duck is all I'm saying.
1: Well, and I, I imagine they considered it a gothic conspiracy because they're both goths. And, you know, there was right. probably a bit of latent prejudice there.
0: Stilico did have that beard.
1: He did. So one of Stilicho's most prominent court rivals, a eunuch named Olympius, uh, the late Roman Empire was really big on eunuchs, convinced the emperor Honorius of this. Stilicho tried to take refuge in a church, but the emperor's soldiers convinced the bishop that they'd been commanded not to kill Stilicho, just to take him into custody.
0: So Stilicho surrendered to the emperor's soldiers. His servants and friends planned a rescue, but Stilicho vociferously argued against it and willingly submitted to his own execution. Far from the would-be usurper the emperor had imagined, he was an obedient servant to Rome until the end.
1: Olympius followed up the execution by ordering a massacre of tens of thousands of women and children, the families of the Gothic soldiers serving in the Roman army. Apparently, he did this as part of his bid to reverse Stilicho's policies, which he saw as overly nice to the Goths. Predictably, about 30,000 Gothic soldiers defected to Alaric in retaliation, swelling his ranks and putting him in a position to lay siege to Rome for the first time. Incidentally, Olympius got what was coming to him, Jenny. He was ordered clubbed to death by a friend of Stilicho who rose to power around 410 411?
0: Most people remember only the one siege of Rome, culminating in a sacking. But actually, Alaric besieged Rome three times, and he didn't do it with the sacking as the goal. He was holding a knife to the empire's neck, trying to get the emperor, Honorius, the child emperor, to negotiate with him. Honorius was the son of Theodosius, the previous emperor, who was dead by now. He was about 10 years old when he took the throne, and probably about 16 by Alaric's first siege.
1: Emperor Honorius wasn't even in Rome, by the way, during any of Alaric's sieges. We talked about this a little bit in our Child Emperor's episode. The emperor at this point was holed up in Ravenna, a town in the middle of a swamp in northern Italy.
0: In the middle of a swamp.
1: We talked about the Monty Python sketch, which we will link to again. (laughs) As
0: soon as anyone mentions anything going on in the middle of the swamp, immediately my mind cuts to this one Monty Python sketch.
1: So let's get back to our story. We have a frightened teenage boy hiding in a swamp from the Goths. Our emperor would have been about 16 years old. The city of Rome was less a political target at this point and more a symbolic one, although the Senate was actually still based there.
0: Over the course of his three sieges, Alaric didn't really try to break into the city. There's a famous quote of him saying, I am at peace with walls, meaning he wasn't that interested in actually breaking the walls of cities down in a siege situation. Instead, he relied on hunger as a weapon, which is, as we know, one of the most devastating weapons of siegecraft. He blocked all food going into the city, forcing the starving citizens to pay and pay. Senate ambassadors tried to frighten him off by telling him that the numerous desperate citizens might pose a threat. And Alaric apparently busted a gut at this and said, the thicker the hay, the easier mode. I
1: mean, man, Jenny, that is some boyfriend.
0: <laughs> I just think he's so great. I just, I'm in love.
1: <laughs> so at his first siege... Jenny's boyfriend, (laughs) Alec, demanded a king's ransom just to go away. He wanted all of the silver and gold in the entire city, plus all the other riches and every barbarian slave. According to Edward Gibbon, the senators he was negotiating with hesitated at this demand and said, If such, O king, are your demands, what do you intend to leave us? Your lives, Alaric replied. Eventually, Alaric scaled back his demands to a princely 5,000 pounds of gold, 30,000 pounds of silver... 3,000 pounds of pepper, 3,000 hides dyed scarlet, 4,000 silken tunics, and and 40,000 gothic slaves.
0: The fact that the hides had to be dyed scarlet stuck out to me, and I was just like, why scarlet? And it turns out that scarlet clothes were a symbol of power and wealth in the ancient world since at least the 8th century BC, when the ancient Assyrians and later the Persians made red dye from the Armenian cochineal, which was a kind of bug.
1: Yeah, and I think it was quite a arduous process to do, and that's why it cost so much money to get things dyed scarlet. Right. So the Romans got their affinity for red-colored clothes from the Persians, as Jenny said, one of their great enemies. But the Romans were always appropriating things from their enemies.
0: You know how the Carthaginians, what they did best was hire outside help? And I think one of the things that the Romans did best was appropriate. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. In the Roman Empire, red was second only to purple in terms of high-ranking colors. Officers in the Roman army got to wear scarlet cloaks. And the word Coconati, or people of red, was a kind of catch-all term for high-ranking people. So Alaric got his red hides, his tunics, his money, and his spices. And he secured the release of 40,000 Gothic slaves. What he didn't get was that pesky title, Jenny.
0: Right, he did not get to be... Senior creative director of the Goths.
1: No, he didn't get a title, so he's got to keep going, because he also didn't get his homeland.
0: So he besieged the city again. This time, Alaric demanded a number of things. A yearly payoff in gold, land for his people, large amounts of food supplies to feed them, and, as always, a title.
1: Because, man, he's literally going to burn your city for a a promotion, a title change. It's
0: not that hard, you guys. Just call him something. Call him, like, regional manager or something. Call him regional director
1: of Roman Gothic relations in Thrace.
0: (laughs) He'd be the worst regional director of Roman Gothic relations in Thrace ever because all he did was pillage. I know, but
1: essentially that's the job they gave him. They're like, we're going to give you a generalship of the people you've just been
0: pillaging. Have fun with keeping law and order. So what Alaric asked for was... Uh, yearly payoff in gold, some land, large amounts of food supplies to feed them, and as always, that title. The land allocation that he asked for was particularly worth noting as it would have given him control over Ravenna and the roads through the Alps, which would have put him in control of basically everything going in and out of the whole Western Empire. So
1: Honoria said no to this, and I mean, for the reasons Jenny just said, that sort of seems like the right call.
0: Surprising no one.
1: <laughs> yeah, this surprised no one. But Alric did a surprising thing. He significantly scale back his demands, asking only for some land in a politically insignificant place and as much corn as the Romans felt like giving him. I mean, talk about lowballing,
0: right? And incidentally, food supplies. I keep seeing this translated as corn, and I did some looking into this because I was getting really confused as to why a new world crop keeps showing up in 400s AD Europe. And the word corn here is used to refer not to actual corn, but in British English, the word corn means any cereal crop, including wheat or rye. Did you know that, Jen?
1: No, I didn't know that. That's totally news to me. Yeah,
0: it's news to me too.
1: Can live in a country for over a decade and still not know all the all the things. All the
0: Britishisms. All the Britishisms.
1: I get new ones every day. I like it.
0: Yeah. It's not clear
1: why Alric scaled back his demands so much. Chances are that he was under pressure from his own chieftains to strike a deal. His people were bored and hungry and impatient for an opportunity to plunder. The land around Rome was probably ravaged and food was likely running out for the invaders as well as the besieged. It was clear that Alaric wanted this to work. For whatever reason, though, Honorius said no to this, too.
0: So this is around the point when Alaric just got fed right up and went and sacked Rome. The siege beforehand was brutal. Alaric, like we said, was known for using hunger as his main weapon in siegecraft, and it was a very powerful one. He kept food from moving into the city, and the people starved. Some accounts say they were reduced to cannibalism by the time the siege broke. Jerome, our historian who gives us eyewitness accounts of goth attacks, mentions that mothers were reduced to eating their own infants so that, quote, the belly received again what a short time before it had given forth. Disease ran rampant, and because the cemeteries were all positioned outside the the cities no one could bury their dead so corpses piled up in the streets.
1: So the upper classes weren't sheltered from the effects of the siege. Some accounts claim slaves opened the gates to the goths while others say it was a noblewoman named Proba who ordered it done. One thing the contemporary sources note is that by sacking standards of the times Alaric was surprisingly easy on Rome. Maybe it's because he was a fanboy. So this is the kinder, gentler, sacking theory. According to contemporary Christian writers of the time, like St. Augustine, Alaric forbade his followers from attacking Christian churches or anyone who took shelter in them. There are lots of stories about barbarian whores refusing to take gold consecrated to the church, escorting holy women to protected sanctuaries, and sparing people who impressed them as particularly pious.
0: How much of this is true is up for debate. It's clear that the siege was not without its horrors, though, and personally, I'm with Dan Carlin. He talks. About this in his Thor's Angels episode, which is super good. It's really, really hard to believe that the Goths doled out the kinder, gentler sacking as reported by Christian writers, whose agenda was to demonstrate how merciful Christians were, even barbarian Aryan Christians sacking a town.
1: Morehead and Stuttered in AD 410 the year the Chick Rome, point out that these early Christian theologians had worked themselves into a logical knot. As the thinking went, the fact that the Goths were Christian meant that the sacking had to be God's will. It also messed with the idea that Christianity was a merciful religion. Telling the story of Christians participating in a brutal sacking is bad press for the religion, so the chroniclers had an incentive to tell the story of a kinder, gentler sacking, to essentially make Christianity look good, You know, Jenny, this reminds me a lot of, do you remember Agora when we watched the film Agora? There's a really good movie. Jenny and I watched it a couple of years ago called Agora, which is about Hypatia, who's a brilliant female mathematician in Alexandria. And uh, the film leads up to the point wherein the Christians burn the library at Alexandria. And I didn't know that the Christians burned the library of Alexandria. It was a total surprise to me. I grew up in a, in a very Christian household. And you can see how through history, or at least the history I was taught as a kid, it kind of got glossed over. The fact that like Christians were sacking civilized cities. You can see the same thing with this wanting to present it as a gentler siege. When actually, what you had going on was a massive culture clash.
0: I think the interesting point here is how unstable Christianity was in its early days. And I don't really know that much about early Christian history, except for the stuff I've learned about kind of tangentially through learning about Rome. But it does seem like at this time, Christianity would have been in a vital point in its history, and they're trying to build it up as a religion that does things differently, you know, and to have a bunch of Christians sacking one of the most quote unquote civilized cities of the ancient world, that doesn't look good for Christianity if you're trying to interpret it from some kind of religious perspective. Perspective. So I can see why everyone was kind of desperate to spin it a certain way. So there's actually both historical and archaeological evidence that the sacking was not quite this kind and gentle, though. Archaeologists found coins in the Roman Forum from the same year as the siege melted into the floor from a fire. And Edward Gibbon describes the sacking this way. A cruel slaughter was made of the Romans and the streets of the city were filled with dead bodies which remained without burial during the general consternation. The despair of the citizens was sometimes converted into fury and whenever the barbarians were provoked by opposition, they extended the promiscuous massacre to the feeble, the innocent, and the helpless. At their entrance through the Salarian Gate, they fired the adjacent houses to guide their march and to distract the attention of the citizens. The flames, which encountered no obstacle in the disorder of the night, consumed many private and public buildings. And that sounds like more a more realistic picture. The sack started on the 24th of August, 410,
1: and it lasted only three to six days, depending on the source. Alaric had to sack Rome. His followers were impatient and hungry, and he had to bring them some reward. It was what they'd been holding out for. Remember, Alaric's kingship was one of persuasion, not tyranny. And if the empire wouldn't meet their demands, then they had to take their own payment out of its hide. But the sacking wasn't exactly a Gothic victory. Alaric's next bid was to get his troops across the sea to Africa, there to cut off the grain supply to the entire Roman peninsula. A storm sank many of his ships, killing a large percentage of his army, and shortly afterward... Alaric died of fever. According to legend, when Alaric died, his followers diverted a river and buried him in a riverbed with all his gold and then rerouted the river back so that it could never be found. The captive slaves who did this work were killed so no one would ever learn the secret location of Alaric's tomb.
0: So is that true? It's kind of hard to say. We know that Alaric died near Cosenza in southern Italy. We know that his followers were deeply upset by his death and his grave has never been found. The tradition of killing wives, concubines, attendants, and members of the court when a ruler dies isn't that unusual in the ancient world. It happened in places like Mesopotamia, ancient China, Egypt, and many other places in the world, although most of the accounts I found were from thousands of years before Alaric's time. But I didn't find any actual archaeological evidence of this diverting the river, killing the gravediggers routine Happening elsewhere in ancient gothic society. The only other mention of a similar burial I found was that of Attila the Hun, who was supposedly buried in the bed of the Tisa river 43 years later, and the truth of his burial story is also disputed, and his grave was also never found.
1: Alaric sacking of Rome did not get him what he wanted. He never got that homeland for his people.
0: He never got that title! Isn't that the worst?
1: Still, it was the first time Rome fell to an invader in 800 years. It didn't put the nail in the coffin of the Roman Empire. By some accounts, it never really died. But it's considered an important milestone in the empire's long fall.
0: Whoever Alaric was as a person, he must have been extremely charismatic, and you can get a sense of his personality from his quotes that have survived. He united the Turvingi and the Grithungi along with Huns, Sarmatians, Alans, and other Gothic tribes and other tribes who had never been united before. Managed to hold on to his people's faith and loyalty despite countless setbacks, starvation, defeat, and failure. He must have been really, really good at persuading his followers to stick with him. After Alaric's death, his brother-in-law, Adolf, stayed in power for Four years before being assassinated, his successor only lasted seven days. Alaric held on to power for 15 years, establishing the Goths as a unified political force with a unified vision, which was a first in history. And perhaps Edward Gibbons said it best when he talked about who Alaric was as a person. Quote, Alaric possessed the invincible temper of mind which rises superior to every misfortune and derives new resources from adversity. After the total defeat of his infantry, he escaped or rather withdrew from the field of battle without wasting a moment to lament the irreparable loss of so many brave companions. He left his victorious enemy to bind in chains the captive images of a Gothic king and boldly resolved to break through the unguarded passes of the Apennine, to spread desolation over the fruitful face of Tuscany, and to conquer or die before the gates of Rome."
1: That's it for today. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks' time with I'm going to give you a spoiler, guys. It's a romance from the fall of Rome. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at ancienthistfan or on Instagram and Facebook at Ancient Fangirl. You
0: can also find our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, and lots of other places where podcasts congregate. Don't forget to subscribe. And if the urge strikes you, we'd love it if you'd rate us and leave us a review. It helps us get seen.
1: And if you want to support what we do, we have a way for you to do that. Go to our website, ancienthistory.com. Fangirl.com and click on the button at the bottom left corner of the homepage that says buy us a latte. Your support will help us pay for things like hosting expenses, better sound, research materials, and yes, caffeinated beverages. So we can stay up all night researching, writing, recording, and editing.
0: And that's not an exaggeration.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's really not. It's really not. I mean... (laughs) this is a labor of absolute love to bring this to you.
0: Such a labor of love. Your support is so much appreciated and every little bit helps. Thank you so much.